Welcome to episode 100 of Positive Regression, a motorsports analytics podcast. I'm Alan Kavana, joined as always by David Smith. On this episode, we celebrate, we celebrate this show and this podcast hitting 100 friggin' episodes. We do that by highlighting some of the well-known triple-digit numbers in NASCAR history and where all those numbers went. Plus, we'll have our first inductions into the Positive Regression Hall of Fame. And of course, we'll finish off by delivering how we always do with a big preview of the upcoming Kansas weekend. Again, as always, this is episode 100 of Positive Regression. This is the triple digit edition of Positive Regression. We are celebrating, David, all the triple digit numbers. Now, would you believe the last time we saw a number 100 in NASCAR was 1965 with good old driver Dick Gullstrand. Uh, the number 100, David, has never had a top three finish. There are many names and uh, associated with the car number 100. Other triple digits include Dan Gurney in a number 121 with the Wood Brothers. The Kikefer Chryslers and Dodges were number 300 and 500. But David, it's been a long time. We don't see the triple digits anymore in NASCAR. Ah, it's been a while. And, you know, the, the reason why is kind of straightforward, kind of, kind of based on an opinion, but it's for scoring purposes. The pylons that you see at racetracks extend only to two digits and the ease of communication, uh, it, because a car number, uh, let's say numbered 134 would be a mouthful for Mike Joy, you know, not Mike Joy specifically, but for anybody calling the race and, uh, manual scorers, uh, back in the day, teams used to have their own scorer sitting in the stands, watching, counting laps. That's no longer a thing though. Uh, we, it's all electronic now, timing and scoring, but, uh, those scorers could not read triple digits clearly or so it's been said. I don't know about you, but when I sit in the stands, I think my first identification marker is the paint scheme and not the number, but that's up for debate. I would argue, Alan, that, uh, that, you know, with electronic timing and scoring, with Supercross, motocross riders popularizing the triple digits. I'm not so sure it's the issue that it once was. What do you think? No, and look, one issue is because there is a rule against it, David. I was checking on this. Section 7.6.1- some letter of the NASCAR rulebook, it says all the numbers must be between 0 and 99. So for the triple digits to come back, they would have to, first of all, uh, make a rule change. But, you know, we are expanding, right? I mean, we're going into the future of NASCAR. I don't understand why you couldn't do triple-digit numbers, uh, especially for all the reasons you just laid out. It would give something of a, a different identity, right? I mean, it would be pretty unique to have a triple-digit number or be one of the few cars with a triple-digit number. I remember we had Kristen Levante on our show not long ago, and she reiterated, remember her background is marketing, and just was saying with potential changes of where the number may be on a car uh, and the differing paint schemes each week, right? You, you mentioned paint schemes, but we're not in that era of the same paint scheme every week, the same sponsor. Uh, as she pointed out, number recognition will be more important than ever in the future. And a cool, big, triple-digit number may be one of the most recognizable on the track if they were ever to go back to it. Yeah. And I think you hit the nail on the head with the word identity. Uh, I think identity is important. And numbers 
bring a team its identity. Uh, I like that we don't retire numbers because they belong to teams, not drivers. You know, Dale Earnhardt drove the number three, but he certainly was not the first to do it with RCR. Uh, I rather enjoyed RCR choosing to have that little small number three on the quarter panel of Kevin Harvick's number 29 car because they were the three team, right? Baseball has the Yankees. Basketball has the Celtics. NASCAR had the three team, and they took pride in that. I always thought it was, you know, bad enough to, to, to lose a legend, a person like Dale Earnhardt, but that identity, that legacy, that was, that was built over time. It was something they were proud of and it went dormant. And I'm glad it's back. Uh, it's the return of an institution. I enjoy William Byron carrying on the legacy of the 24. Brad Keselowski has written a new chapter for the number two. Kyle Busch was not the first champion in the 18 car. And the 43 car, the, the most famous number in NASCAR, uh, even with the struggles that that program has faced in recent years, that number still carries a lot of weight. It matters, and it matters to fans. It matters to those working for those teams. And if we're making numbers smaller, if we're sliding them to the rear of the car and, and you know, the, the way it's going, they're probably being slid all the way off of the car um, to, you know, to various degrees, this minimizes a team's identity and that's a shame. So triple digit numbers, let's do it. Let's have some fun because you know, that, if there's a case for numbers at all, then I think there's a case for triple digits. The numbers are something fun for the fans. It's an identity for the teams. Four digits is probably a bridge too far, right? <laughs> but we're not think, crazy. <laughs> yeah, no. The, the, you're asking where does it stop? It stops at 999. We'll we'll stop it right there. But I I think you know the having the number be the identity, and that's something that we've uh, made uh, a talking point every episode of positive regression to this point. And you hear all the stories associated with numbers. It's a shame if that were to ever change dramatically or leave altogether and you know think of think of the stories that we've told over these last 100 episodes think of how many more stories we could tell if more numbers were available right um i'm all for it and i think if it's if it's something that that brings fun to fans that watch the sport every sunday then i think we should seriously consider doing it we've had a whole episode of full of crazy ideas and this wouldn't even qualify it's not even that crazy of an idea who knows nfl just changed its number policy you never know what could come down uh the can come down the road someday especially with the next generation car maybe next generation of numbers but that's just what we're thinking about david because this is the triple digit edition of positive regression. Let's get it started. When your business is starting its championship run, nothing matters more than finding and hiring the best team. With Indeed, you have the power to build a dynasty by hiring more MVPs faster. Start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash bluewire. Offer valid through March 31st. If you're hiring, you need Indeed because Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. And Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applicants that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. Go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. 
no matter how the last game went, anytime you take the field, you got a shot at greatness. Give your team the best shot at winning by recruiting more MVPs with Indeed. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And David, to start this episode, it's not on our rundown, but I want us to take something of just a short victory lap, David, because this little podcast has reached episode 100. Maybe I've mentioned it so far, but I just want to say it's been a professional honor to be a part of this only because this is a podcast, David, that is listened to by drivers in the garage, crew chiefs, engineers, and a whole big group of smart, smart listeners that have joined us on this journey. And it all started with the work you've done in your professional career, David. So I want to, I want to thank you personally for help letting me be a part of this and making me be a smarter race fan, journalist, uh, analyst at, at times, but it's been such a pleasure to be a part of this and see it grow and hear from our listeners and know we're kind of, you know, the kind of the cool kids on the block sometimes when we, when, when people can interact with us and we can have our nerdy conversations. The nerdy conversation has turned into something cool. Uh, we're cool. I don't feel cool sometimes, but oh, that's so touching. I, that's, I've got goosebumps. Oh, thank you so much for saying that, Alan. You know, man, uh, wow. Okay. Yeah. You caught me off guard, but I, I will say this. Um, you, you are important too, and, and probably in, in ways that you just don't even understand. I am an introvert, a deep, deep introvert. And I am someone trying to be heard in an industry that rewards the loudest extroverts, good or bad. So at times I feel like the odds are stacked against me and doing this podcast with you has allowed not only a comfortable outlet for me, uh, positive regression has probably elevated my place in the sport more so than anything else that I've done. But it's also made smart conversation about NASCAR. You said cool kids on the, on the block, but I think it's made smart conversation about NASCAR acceptable. And it feels natural now. And a lot of that is because you are so damn good, so good at pulling rationale and theory and answers out of me. Uh, you are acting as one of the listeners, asking questions on their behalf, and you are quite talented at that. Uh, you ask questions from a place of curiosity and not judgment, and I think that that is something that is lacking in the NASCAR media and media in general and also the wider world while we're at it. Uh, so yes, while positive regression was my brainchild, make no mistake that there's no positive regression without Alan Kavana. And I very much look forward to the next hundred episodes doing what we do, sharing what we love. Amen. It's been, it's been a fun time and, uh, yeah, well said and I appreciate it. So I just wanted to make sure we took a little victory lap and, and look, every episode is, is a thank you to all listeners. So thank you to everybody who's asked a question and chimed in and sent us a text over, uh, the few years that we've been doing this. It's been very cool. So with that, David, now that we got that out of the way, just to celebrate 100 episodes, we're going to celebrate a different way by opening up the doors to the positive regression 
Hall of Fame. <laughs> this is a Hall of Fame of our own making. Uh, the, the committee, you and I, are choosing who will be inducted. And we'll have a little fun with it. We're not just looking for spreadsheet superstars. It's not fully based on numbers. Uh, we're going to celebrate some people and some things in NASCAR who maybe approach problems with an analytical mindset and uh, maybe who were pioneers who didn't even know what they were up to when all this started. Uh, so, David, you and I will both uh, select two inductees for the inaugural class of the Positive Regression Hall of Fame. Anything you want to uh, preamble with before we get to it? Uh, you know, I, 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 this was something that I've been thinking about for a while, and I do want to celebrate, pay homage to, uh, or the very least recognize folks in the industry who think differently or approach problems analytically. And there, there are so many out there now. Uh, it, it's, it's so smart. I mean, I, I've, I've gone on national podcasts and radio shows that have asked me to explain, well, what's it like doing analytics and NASCAR and, and I tell them that it's actually very natural. It's all been very inviting. And there are, there are teams, uh, crew guys, drivers, engineers. When you think about auto racing, you think about the people touching cars, uh, especially mechanical engineers. What do they know? Well, they know cars and they know math, right? So this is a natural marriage, but Auto racing didn't just exist for the last 10 years. It's, it's been a long time brewing and there have been thinkers while they, they may not have been advanced stats driven. There were people in the sport that were solving problems in a way ordinary people would not have. So I think this is an opportunity to showcase these folks. I, I don't, I don't have any plans for like doing this very often. Um, but. Every every now and then, every round-numbered episode, I think, we'll come back to our Hall of Fame and see who else deserves just a, a day in the sun, right, for, for their achievements over time, whether it netted them trophies or not. And uh, we, we've gone through the, the list here, the initial four. I think it's a lot of fun, and uh, it, it starts with the first name at the top because I've um, I've picked someone that uh, probably deserves to be in any Hall of Fame, but at the at the very least, he can uh, he can be a part of ours, maybe the the least desirable accomplishment of his many accolades. But uh, yes, who is the first Alex? inductee? The first inductee to get the black and gold jacket of Positive Regression Hall of Fame. Ah, uh, he is the late, the great, the last American hero. Junior Johnson. Woo! Yay! Uh, <laughs> Alan Junior Johnson once told ESPN writer Wright Thompson that he became a race car driver because, and I quote, I wasn't smart enough to do anything else. And I have the utmost amount of respect for Junior Johnson, but I respectfully disagree with this. Uh, in, a, in addition to driving and owning a team, he actually was a successful farmer, a chicken farmer, among other things. And if you know anything about chicken farming, the avenues to money making are plentiful. You've got the poultry, you've got the eggs, even chicken feces goes for a pretty penny on the market. You can, you can make money a lot of ways with that. Uh, so I actually think he was pretty savvy with what he did as a side hustle. He actually took some Darlington race winnings and applied them to his chicken farm. So he was actually making money and investing it. Um, 
but in my opinion, he very much was the, the branch Ricky of NASCAR. And Alan, you might not be aware of branch Ricky and, and some of our listeners might not, but he was probably the modern day equivalent of a general manager for the Brooklyn Dodgers. And he was key in identifying statistics in baseball that mattered, uh, things that he wanted to do in terms of exercises with, uh, you know, early workings like a batting cage, um, working with pitcher training, things like that. He also looked off to the Negro leagues at a time during segregation when he said, you know, those players are really good. I'd like to have them on my team. I think they can make us better. And he went out and he signed Jackie Robinson. So he addressed some things at a time during baseball that really had never been done. And I think in a lot of ways, Junior Johnson did that for auto racing. He established some practices that we consider ordinary now, but they were extraordinary at the time that he uncovered them. So the first one, I want to bring to light the 1960 Daytona 500. I don't know if you know the story of this, but I'll uh, I'll tell it here uh, a little bit. That 1960 Daytona 500 race is underrated, underappreciated uh, in the effort because of how he won it. He knew very early on that he just he didn't have the car that that he needed, and this was a big race. It was going to pay uh, somewhere under twenty thousand dollars, and he knew he needed that money, and he was. Driving a car owned by uh, independent owner John Massoni. Uh, he was driving a 59 Chevrolet against a field of stronger Pontiacs and Plymouths. Uh, the Plymouths were driven by both Lee and Richard Petty. The Pontiacs had names like Fireball Roberts, Cotton Owens, Bobby Johns, and, and the Pontiac teams just brought fire breathers to Daytona this year. Well, Junior Johnson was realistic about his chances in this race and he talked about it. And this is actually, you can find this quote in the famous Tom Wolf article, The Last American Hero. He said that my car was about 10 miles an hour slower than the rest of the cars, mainly the Pontiacs. In the preliminary races, the warm-ups and stuff like that, they were smoking me off the track. Then I remember once I went out for a practice run and Fireball Roberts was out there in a Pontiac and I got in right behind him on a curve, right on his bumper. I knew I couldn't stay with him on the straightaway, but I came out of the curve fast, right in behind him, running flat out, and then I noticed a funny thing. As long as I stayed right in behind him, I noticed I picked up speed and I stayed right with him and my car and it was going faster than it had ever gone before. I could tell on the tachometer. My car wasn't turning no more than 6,000 before that, but when I got into this drafting position, I was turning 6,800 to 7,000. It felt like the car was plumb off the ground floating along. Alan, he didn't tell anybody that he had discovered drafting. He kept that, he kept that to himself for the duration of the 1960 Daytona 500. And he did, he drafted his way to a surprising win and the, and the bulk of that, uh, that big purse. Big deal, right? I mean, that is altered how we think of Daytona and Talladega nowadays. And it was Junior Johnson who stumbled upon that for NASCAR. Uh, another thing. How he approached waste, waste, I'm not sure the fans realize, waste over-purchasing parts 
uh, that might soon become obsolete given, you know, given the, the rules changes that happen frequently in NASCAR. Uh, and, and even when he was driving and was in the ownership game, this was especially true. He didn't purchase many parts for his car because he made them. He and, and when he had enough of one part, he simply stopped working and moved on to something else. Nothing was wasted with Junior Johnson. There was no overpurchasing. He had everything he needed, but not more, uh, not one more. And that is some efficiency. I mean, enviable efficiency in how he operated his race team. And the the last thing to consider, and I think this is something that you're going to find very interesting, Alan. Kale Yarborough drove for Junior Johnson from 1975 to 1980. Yarborough was offered more money for less races, if you can figure that one out, by upstart MC Anderson, uh, looking to get his own Cup Series program going. Uh, you might think that Junior Johnson would have sweated this because Cale Yarborough had 41 wins for Junior across six seasons, and he was about to walk out the door. But that wasn't the case. Johnson didn't think it was necessary to get on his hands and knees and beg a 41-year-old, Cale Yarborough, to stay. And instead, he recruited, oh, some pipsqueak driver heading into his age 34 season named Daryl Waltrip, who then went on to win 43 races for Junior, two more than Kale, across his own six-year stretch. And it should be noted that over half of DW's 84 career wins came while driving for Junior Johnson. Now, when Rick Hendrick came calling after the 1986 season for Daryl Waldrip, Junior Johnson recognized that Waldrip was about to turn 40, and he didn't blink. He ended up hiring a 30-year-old Terry Labonte. Now, you might have recognized a pattern, and if you think that there's a coincidence here, I can assure you that there wasn't one, because according to Daryl Waldrip, he said that Junior chose me because I was the right age at the right time. Junior had Leroy Yarbrough when Leroy was hot. He got Kale when Kale was hot, and he had me when I was hot. It was classic Junior he told me one time he wants a driver to be in his late 29s or early 30s. That's what he told me one time, and I laughed so hard. Alan, what does that sound like? Does that sound like Junior Johnson stumbled upon the aging curve before it was cool? Dun, dun, dun. Sounds like, you know, he stumbled upon a lot of things before they were known and cool, and that's why he is a Hall of Famer. Yes. <laughs> It was also said that uh, he believed that uh, young drivers do not take care of equipment. They crash far too often for his liking. Again, this was a gentleman who hated waste. If he didn't think a car was good, he sold it to Ralph Seagraves for it to become uh, an official NASCAR show car. Uh, decades later, at least when I was able to get to it on Motorsports Analytics, Junior Johnson's theory about young drivers and crashing proved Correct. Young drivers do crash more often, and it is a distinct trend line downward as a driver gets older. And here he was hiring drivers in their early 30s or mid-30s and letting them walk out the door by the time that they were 40. Uh, one driver he really wanted, and a lot of it had to do with age, he did not get him, and he sort of always kicked himself for this, was Alan Kowicki. 
and it was prior to the 92 season, Junior Johnson seriously thought that he had a chance because Kowicki was driving for himself. He did not have concrete sponsorship going into that year, but Junior was rebuffed. Uh, Junior had to settle for Bill Elliott, and that's fine. Uh, but ironically, they they ended up losing the series championship on the final day of the 1992 season to Kowicki. Uh, and he did this uh, with team members too. A year after MC Anderson lured Kale Yarborough away, MC Anderson came for crew chief Tim Brewer and engine builder Harold Elliott, again with a promise of more money and less races. I'd like to point out that Anderson lasted only two seasons as a car owner. Not a coincidence because this business plan sounds ridiculous. But for Junior Johnson, who kept a stacked team roster, it was next man up. And that next man was Jeff Hammond. So it worked out pretty well. And that was something that he had to do. Successful teams got picked apart back then all the time. They they still do. They're contracts now. Um, So maybe it's a, a little bit more rigid. But Junior said that, MC went to his pocketbook. After a while, he'll have a Junior Johnson racing team. He won't have accomplished a thing if he wins everything because he will have a Junior Johnson team. I appreciate the pettiness, but Junior's new team waxed his old team off the racetrack across those two years as DW won 12 races apiece, 24 total in 1981 and 1982. Daryl Waldrop said it best, Junior Johnson was not a follower. He was a leader. And that, Alan, is why he's the first inductee into the Positive Regression Hall of Fame. Very cool. And that's what I love about this podcast is we learn a little bit of history. We learn about the analytics side. And uh, we just get the appreciation for smart, smart people involved in the sport. And a different kind of appreciation. I mean, Junior Johnson got plenty of deserved flowers. But to point out everything you just did is uh, is another cool uh, aspect to learn. And I'm glad we did it. So Junior Johnson in the Positive Regression Hall of Fame. And David, on that front, on a similar tangentially related front, my first inductee into the Positive Regression Hall of Fame is the age 39. Yay. <laughs> Everybody clap. Please clap. All right. No, I, age... I, I am I am nervously awaiting how you're going to land this plane. Well, I mean, look, look, age 39, it is quite possibly the most referenced number and nugget of information we've ever shared here on this podcast in the previous 99 episodes. I think probably once, once an episode, it gets a mention, the age 39 season. It's been repeated many times over. It is a number I talk about in interviews on the radio or where have you, other times of analysis. And again, if you're just listening or you don't know what this is, according to the data, motorsportsanalytics.com and David Smith himself, at age 39 on average is a driver's peak age for performance, for production. Again, it's an average, so it's not like every driver at age 39 is the best and you're not going to pinpoint every single driver at age 39, but on average, extrapolated over, I think, about two decades of research, right? Uh, the peak production on average for a driver comes at age 39. So when you see Denny Hamlin, let's say, winning six races at age 38, seven races at age 39, and now at 40, he's off to this blistering start, we probably shouldn't be surprised. You can see where we're going with this, and, and there are countless other examples in this range 
The age 39, David, has taught me to reevaluate how I look at drivers' careers. Maybe it started with Junior Johnson, but to put a, a pin on it like you have and with the numbers, how what they have come up to say, it's just made me look at drivers differently and their careers. And I just got to say, one of the most memorable moments of doing this podcast, David, came in 2019. The championship four that year was Kevin Harvick, Martin Truex Jr., Denny Hamlin, and Kyle Busch. And one of our listeners tweeted to us, before I even knew this was happening, that the combined ages of those four drivers age was 38 and a half years old. And I just thought that was the coolest thing because one of our listeners had taken what we had talked about, put it in the back of their heads, just like I would have, and they figured out the data that the championship four was on average age 38 and a half years old. So age 39, David, here's to you. Here, hear that? That is your, uh, that is going up in the rafters right now. The jersey number 39 is going up in the rafters of the Positive Regression Hall of Fame. And we will continue to mention it as the, as we go on and go forward because the age 39 is of utmost performance for this podcast. I look forward to seeing so many number 39 positive regression cars pop up on iRacing. I can't wait for that to, to <laughs> oh, be no. so sweet. <laughs> no, you, you bring up a good point. I mean, if, if there's been one staple, one thing that we, that we've been able to at least get the, the, the wider motorsports world to understand is that there is an aging curve. Drivers do have this and for, for whatever reasons it can be, Physical, mental, um, even just how drivers shift in, uh, in their life, their priorities. This is, they're, they're usually settling into, to, to family matters at, at that point, but that is the age. And, you know, if you want to broaden the gap, the, the range, um, that is a driver's statistical peak. It's important to know that. And for me, one of the reasons that I know that I I drive it home. I know that I lay the age thing on thick when evaluating drivers uh, is because I used to do this with uh, a little bit more stakes on the table, um, working as an agency scout. And I don't mind sharing that the the majority of the mistakes that I made in evaluation were because I didn't give proper credence to a driver's age. Um, I did not give it the attention that it deserved. So it's it, it sort of, look, I'm, I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine making a mistake as long as I learn from it. If I don't, then I'm just burning myself again. Um, so that's, that's why I just had that concentration on that. And that's important to know that sometimes you can't give up on a driver. You know, if Martin Truex had been booted, think about yeah. that, you know, yep. two wins for a long time before he ever got to furniture row racing, he is also nowhere near his statistical peak, and that's that's a pretty significant reminder. We see ebbs and flows in careers. We saw Denny Hamlin struggle a lot before reaching this point in this career with a team this good, with a crew chief this good, and they're reaping the rewards of that. We're witnessing Kyle Busch going through whatever Kyle Busch is doing right now, but his his days are not over at the top. There There will be a rebound, and we know that because – 
that's typically what drivers do. They they do rise to prominence around this age. So AJ, AJ Allmendinger is one uh, example we've brought up lately, is because he is at that point right now, and we saw him be, I think, what the best in peer last year in the Xfinity yeah. series, and ranked now second right now. Yeah, yeah and chasing a title. Yeah, and and that's that's very much the case. So, yeah, it's it's a it's an age old in distinction, or or maybe just in sports in general. But when it comes to race car driving, this is this is kind of it. It's the the height of your powers, the height of your knowledge, all uh, culminating in in one nexus point. So uh, I appreciate it, and I'm glad that you're uh, bringing it to light here again. And we're we're putting an age in the Hall of Fame. How about that? Can't stress it enough. Impress all your friends with all the knowledge you learn on here. David, inductee number three of the 2021 inaugural class of the Positive Regression Hall of Fame. Who is it? Uh, I'm going to induct a crew chief, uh, but not uh, not just any crew chief. He has a championship winning crew chief, but he's not someone that I feel is earmarked for the actual Hall of Fame. I, I, but I think he deserves some uh, some moment in the sun here. Paul Andrews. And if you don't know who Paul Andrews is, I guess at this point it's fair to say that he's a journeyman crew chief, but his career started in what could have become his forever role. He was the crew chief for Alan Kowicki's independent team. And once the team was sold to Jeff Bodine, he remained with that team uh, there until 1997. So 1986 or so to 1997, something of a 10-year stretch with uh, with one team, the number seven team. He was also the crew chief for both of Steve Park's Cup Series victories for Dale Earnhardt Incorporated. Uh, weirdly, again, DEI after Dale Sr.'s death, Steve Park's injuries, what seemed promising didn't come to maybe the kind of fruition we thought it would. That is some tough fortune, but Paul Andrews still managed to succeed by thinking analytically. Uh, in 1992, he and Alan Kowicki won the series championship, defeating Bill Elliott, Junior Johnson, and a host of others on the final day of the season. They were indeed able to go toe-to-toe with Elliott that year. And in that race, uh, the finale at Atlanta specifically, working the calculators, Alan, on pit road with the goal. They knew this going into the race, that whatever happened, they wanted to earn the five bonus points for leading the most laps in that race. They recognized the point in the race when that goal became mathematically settled, after which Paul Andrews, uh, feverishly working the calculators again to understand how much fuel he could take and maintain his running position. It amounted to three seconds, and when the team's gas man, Tony Gibson, uh, you know him as uh, Daytona 500 <laughs> winning crew chief, Tony Gibson, he went over the wall, held the gas can for three seconds exactly, Dale held their breaths. Elliott won the race. Kowicki finished second. And thanks to the bonus points, a gimmick, Alan, go figure, <laughs> Kowicki claimed the championship. Uh, they were able to do all of that on the fly. They had a goal. They knew what they wanted to accomplish, but they still had to come up with uh, some, some very early pit strategy designs just to maintain their running whereabouts on the track. Um, secondly, and perhaps more important, than a championship. Paul Andrews, I will submit, is the father of uh, certainly modern 
road course strategy, but as good strategy can seep to other tracks, he was influential in the rise of short pitting, thanks to Jeff Bodine's 1996 win at Watkins Glen. This team did this out of necessity. Uh, firstly, Jeff Bodine, generally not a successful road course racer. I think he will admit that. But secondly, Andrews and Bodine recognized that their pit crew leading into this race weekend stunk, for lack of a better word. Uh, Bodine even said this in the winner's press conference. At Indy last week, we got too far behind on pit stops. Myself and Paul Andrews made a decision this week to make only two stops during the race. And that is what they did. It was premeditated, not a happy accident. They flipped what was then the normal pit strategy upside down by pitting early, well in advance of the first window opening, and then again once more in advance of the second window. And they made their last run, a run where most teams would pit for fuel and tires. They made that run a fuelless run. They had track position. They weren't going to run out of gas. Bodine stayed out and won the race. And at least until the advent of stage racing, this was how road course races were approached in the NASCAR Cup Series. Now, Andrews did not invent short pitting or uh, pitting fewer times than other teams. That's happened before in NASCAR and another genre as well before 1996. But this gambit and its result put the rest of the sport on notice. And this was the moment where this kind of strategy became a more regular occurrence. So Paul Andrews, an innovator, someone who literally flipped the script on how NASCAR races are approached and how strategy is conceived. Excellent. We speak your name, Paul Andrews. Welcome to the Positive Regression Hall of Fame. David, something I always like to repeat, I stole from you, but the fastest pit stop is no pit stop at all. And I always thought that was just the smartest little piece of advice and something I think about during races. And uh, what you just brought up with Paul Andrews is a great example of it. Yeah, made Jeff Bodine look good at his home track. And it should be said that that, that was a big deal. I mean, Jeff Bodine made that a big deal. He owned that team that was, you know, from nearby Shemung, New York. That race meant a lot to him. And considering where Paul Andrews was at that career, he, he really thought that he had the guy in Alan Kowicki. I mean, a lot of people thought highly of Alan Kowicki. Paul was one of them. Um, and this was maybe some success that he didn't expect, but he looked at a race and saw it differently. And sometimes to find an answer, find a solution to a problem, you kind of have to pick the problem up and turn it upside down a little bit and look at it from different angles. And that's, I think that's what we're looking for with this Hall of Fame. It's not necessarily, you know, the, the spreadsheet standouts, uh, Paul Andrews, wasn't necessarily that, but he was a championship winning crew chief and he was a smart strategist. And, uh, and certainly that's the, the key to our hearts here at Positive Regression. Good stuff. And for my second pick for the Positive Regression Hall of Fame, I also went a crew chief, David, uh, quite similar, I would think, to Paul Andrews and the reasons why, but, uh, a little, a little closer to our Positive Regression hearts. David, my second and final inductee for the inaugural class of Positive Regression Hall of Fame goes to current crew chief, Trent Owens. Yes. Wow. 
current crew chief Trent Owens, currently the captain of the number 37 car for JTG Doherty Racing. Yes, I'm sorry. Round of applause for the humble man that Trent Owens is. But he holds a special meaning to this podcast and to me, David, because he represents how I've come to look at racing differently, honestly, since working on this podcast. If you are a longtime listener, you know each season we do a crew chief draft. And we're not drafting based on wins or, or kind of results or speed or anything like that. We base our game on the number of positions gained through green flag pit cycles. And Trent Owens has consistently been one of, if not the best, at that type of decision-making throughout the years. The numbers, they do not lie, my friend. He is consistently the top or one of the top draft picks when it comes to our game. And again, I'm highlighting this and putting him in the Positive Regression Hall of Fame because he represents just the deeper look at stats and track position that we hope to highlight on this podcast, something I've learned to look for while watching a race. And if there's anything I hope you've taken away from listening to all these episodes, it's that when you're watching a race and the green flag is out and the pit window opens, there are absolutely decisions to be made. And some crew chiefs are better at it than others. It is something I've learned. It is something I hope the listeners have learned. It has changed the way I've looked at and watched races. I hope it's done the same for you. And to me, Trent Owens represents kind of all of that, all of the knowledge I've gained from this podcast, looking at races differently. He is kind of the face of it for me. And therefore, he is my Hall of Famer for the Positive Regression Hall of Fame. Congrats, Trent Owens. The face of the green flag pet cycle. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I mean that's. I think it's important for for any NASCAR fan really to understand what, even if you're a crew chief and your car is a mid pack car or a back marker car, you could still have a positive impact. We we've said that about drivers a couple of episodes ago with the the argument over uh, whether we should be pragmatic about results or romantic about the effort. The same can be said for the crew chiefs that are at the very least getting their driver's positions on the racetrack that we do not see sitting from our couch. And Trent Owens routinely was, still is one of those guys. And I I think the fact that he embodies what we look for in that regard, I think that's an excellent selection. All right. Well, good. And it's something we will continue to watch. Maybe uh, other crew chiefs, uh, uh, young engineers who listen to this podcast will emerge as good decision makers. And I, again, just uh, smarter race fans, I include myself in that conversation because uh, I have learned a lot by doing these over the last hundred episodes. And it is something to be appreciated when we see uh Track position and production happen right in front of our eyes, and it's something to think about. And David, another thing I thank you for as well. So uh, I think we have a good initial inaugural class. Maybe we wait another 100 episodes before we open the doors to uh, to the Hall of Fame again. But uh, I, I think it's it's off to a good start. Yes. Well, it'll certainly be, uh, uh, not a, a, not a net loss in revenue, right? Like most Hall of Fames in general. I think we're, I think we're doing very well for ourselves. What a great first class though. What, what a lot of fun. Uh, man, I can't, maybe someone's going to have to emerge. I can't, uh, I can't wait for the next one. And, and I, and I also can't imagine it, uh, just because of the strength of this, uh, these first four. This was very good.
Yes, I, I think when you look back and see Junior Johnson, the age 39, Paul Andrews and Trent Owens as quote-unquote Hall of Famers in the same Hall of Fame, you know what I mean? I mean, it is very on-brand for positive regression. So we will look forward to the next class. And David, let's finish this episode off like uh, we do every episode, previewing the upcoming race because that's what we love to talk about, right? We're going to talk about some racing on the track, uh, the Cup Series, the Truck Series, even ARCA heading to Kansas this weekend out to the heartland. And David, Kansas, you know, we haven't been to a mile and a half track, I don't think, in a while. It, it, you know, the bread and butter of what used to be the NASCAR schedule. Uh, what do you... What do you make of this racetrack? I mean, just given the fact that it, it is it is from the cookie-cutter era, right? I mean, no two tracks are the same. But when you look at Kansas, it is in that final round, the round of eight. I mean, winning at Kansas later on this year, it can put you in the championship four. Winning this race later on in October gives you a 25% shot at a Cup Series championship. Mm. So we have to judge it that way in terms of importance. But what do you make of this racetrack, Kansas Speedway? Well, that's a great point. I mean, whatever you think of this track, there is a lot of gravity, a lot of importance to it, right? Just based on the positioning and the schedule. I don't know that the rules package as it's currently built does it any favors, uh, especially if the storyline coming out of last year's playoff race was a no pass, a pass that didn't happen. Um, Kevin Harvick could not pass Joey Logano, but failed passes are kind of a thing at Kansas. Uh, Carl Edwards in 2008, uh, an entirely different car, much less a different rules package that attempted slide job on Jimmy Johnson. If you can remember that it was oh, yeah. a slide job gone horribly wrong. He smacked the wall it was daring. It was that. It was, it was something. Um, but that was the prevailing highlight again was a pass that did not occur. And Alan, I think I figured out what this track is. It's a 550 track and it's a host to some random results. Uh, the summer race last year saw a correlation of 0.6 between speed ranking and finishing position. That's sort of a, of a, a no correlation or, or a no contest, if you will. Uh, it was a little bit better in the fall race. It was a, a plus 0.8 with, uh, and that was with a different tire combination. But there is a sense of looming randomness. And on top of that, it seems to be that if you are bad at something, if you are a, uh, um, are not a good restarter, if your passing is not efficient, if your pit crew is slow, this is a tough place to to get a result or at least get a deserving finish. The margins for error are pretty big. The margins for recovery are slim and may not necessarily be indicative of your effort. And while, yeah, I don't know about you, there, there are probably other tracks I'd prefer to see with as prominent of a position in the playoffs. I do think it's okay for a track to sort of be unforgiving like it is, I just think that the combination of that, uh, the, uh, an ability to, uh, to reward faults and, uh, the other thing, the randomness to results largely dictated by track position and strategy, that is an understandably tough combination to swallow if you're a fan. Just, you know, hoping to see a race that's more traditionally entertaining. I think. That is the rub on it. If maybe if, if one of those things didn't exist, 
uh, and the other one remained, maybe it'd be more palatable. What do you think? Uh, I, I could see that. I mean, look, I appreciated what Joey Logano was able to do last year. So maybe I'm in the opposite camp. Maybe he, he got hated on because he's Joey Logano, but I, I think it takes a tremendous skill to block and play defense like he did. But I, I can see the, the beef. Uh, of not being able to make a winning pass. And, and it was highly talked about last year, but, uh, I, I don't, I don't have a strong opinion uh, on Kansas in terms of whether it's a, a good or, or positive track or not. I mean, checking with some of our, our friends in the garage, I mean, they describe it as, as difficult for drivers for all the reasons that you said, but one of them being just the subtleness of the corners. Kansas in particular, I guess, the banking really hits in the center of the corner and not so much like kind of as you drive in and as you drive off. So that makes it somewhat different from the other cookie cutter tracks and we don't get the two lanes as much. Uh, so it has its own unique qualities for a, you know, round a mile and a half track that we see a lot of in NASCAR, but I, I can appreciate its spot and its importance only because of its spot on the calendar. So uh, you know, I don't have much of a hot take when it comes to the Kansas track, but yeah. I can appreciate w- what is done out there for these drivers. Yeah. And those are good points. I mean, this, it is ultimately going to be a track position race. And at times that's going to be clear. Oh, on pit road, uh, on restarts, um, it, it, there's going to be a lot of franticness. There's going to be a lot of tough decisions made. There's going to be a lot of gambles, uh, all really with the same goal. And that's, yeah, let's talk yourself. about that. I mean, yeah. with track position so hard to come by, I mean, what can you do? I mean, can you, we do, we think about what pit stops, we think about, uh, restarts and the skilled drivers on a restart trying to get some track position there. Uh, uh what, what can you do to get some track position? Uh, well, okay. Um, pit stops are top of mind. Uh, and, and this is the same, Tire combination that we saw in the fall race last year. It's the same one that we saw at Las Vegas, different than what we saw at Homestead in Atlanta. The expected fall off is about a half second to 0.8 seconds uh, at the end of the run. So there's some, but it isn't much. Uh, working a short pit is possible, working a long pit is possible, and pitting neatly within the most populated window, also possible. Ultimately, Alan, we're just looking for teams to get on pit road quickly and off of pit road and into a clean lap. Run those laps clean once you have the fresh rubber. That's that's pretty important on a green flag run. That's going to be the choice pathway uh, to positions under green. Under yellow is where things might get interesting. We could see certainly some cheating. Uh, you know, the, the two-stop, <laughs> no tire. Not, not, no, I'm sorry, not outright, not blatant outright cheating. Two-tire, two no-tire <laughs> stop, right? Um, but those are gambles. And... At, you know, as these restarts have become, ah, gosh, I don't want to be cliche to say it's like pack racing, but that is kind of what it is, right? Ultimately, it's similar to pack racing, these restarts, and it's important to have track position just going into those. Uh, Joey Logano won this race last fall. You say because of the defense, the pit crew gained him 16 spots in that race, and that was tremendous. Kevin Harvick, I think, lost this race in part because he had a bad final pit stop. He lost the lead to Logano. He could not recover, could not pop that bubble of, of air and get around Logano. Well, the pit stop did him in. The ensuing restarts here after yellow flag stops do offer some salvation, but they, they mean they tend to be hard. Uh, we see cars darting 
everywhere. The restart dynamic itself with the 550 package has made all of this frantic. Uh, the best position with a positive average gain is sixth place, which is the outside of the third row. That should tell you that no position, especially those in the front, is truly safe. But the outside spot on the front row retains 75% of the time compared to the inside's 41% rate. That will be interesting to see how that plays out uh, as teams select uh, in the choose zone. And there are other uh, a few other quirks as well. 12th place is a better restart spot than ninth place and holds a higher average running position after two laps. Uh, that is 10.2 compared to 10.8. Be on the lookout for that. And big drops. Uh, when I do uh, restart analysis on motorsports analytics, I remove aberrations. But is it an aberration when a big drop occurs every single race? In each of the last four Kansas races, all with this package, at least one car lost 10 or more spots on a restart from inside the first what? seven rows. And it wasn't because of any real damage and not all of them were gambles. It's just that it is that wild. That is real. Wow. Uh, that does happen. So certainly the restarts uh, at the very least are appointment viewing this weekend for good reason, because that's how these drivers believe they're going to be able to obtain the most track position. All right. So you just mentioned effectiveness on a pit stop. You know, don't screw up and be a good restarter, right? At least two things to help you <laughs> that, that can help any weekend, but especially at Kansas. So is there any team or favorite that you're looking at that is solid in both those areas? If you think pit stops and restarts. Uh, so it's a slippery combination because it, you would be wasting money if you had a top five pit crew with a series worst restarter, right? <laughs> so, so you want to be good at both. Piss them um, all away, right? <laughs> just, you know, in terms of both Denny Hamlin w- with high restart marks, the second fastest pit crew based on four tire median box time. Uh, he's one that we have to pay attention to. I know he's winless. Uh, he, he is, he's going to be good. He's a recent, uh, winner twice in recent races. He's someone to consider. Uh, the Hendrick Motorsports group, I expect will be fast. And among that group, uh, right now, William Byron and Chase Elliott are the best restarters, but they don't have a consistent pit crew. Alex Bowman has the fastest pit crew among the Hendrick four and the fastest pit crew in the series. He isn't quite the restarter of those other guys. Kyle Larson has a little bit of both going on Uh seventh best restarter overall in the series based on retention rate, fourth fastest pit crew. That might be the choice Hendrick pick, but uh I don't know. For some reason, I think all four of them are going to make an appearance at the front before that one's over. Well, talk about a great segue, David, because now we're going into our picks to win for the weekend. And damn, did you just reveal my winner, Kyle Larson? That's who I'm picking. Uh, this is, you know, all of what you just said makes me feel so much better, but this is also straight from the motorsportsanalytics.com speed pages. But look, Larson and team have the fastest 550 horsepower speed in the series so far this year. He is one of the best passers as well at tracks like these, the 550 horsepower tracks. Uh, along with everything you just mentioned about his restarting capability, his pit crew speed. So I'm rolling with it. I'm saying Kyle Larson goes back to victory lane for victor, for victory number two on the season. Who you got, David? 
That is my pick as well. Oh, yes. This is getting so, more consistent. I'm feeling better about myself and smarter. <laughs> yeah. So uh, look, in addition to everything you said, uh, you, you mentioned he's, he ranks first in speed on the 550 tracks. His win this year came at Las Vegas on this tire combination. And that track is the most similar to Kansas. You know, they're not all cookie cutters, but nah, it's kind of close. It's, I mean, it's going to take kind of the same things. Um, even if the tire fall off is a little bit more than expected, that probably plays in to what Larson's doing. If the wear is not bad, then that might also fall into his wheelhouse because a tire that doesn't wear much is, uh, is just going to allow Kyle Larson to kind of do whatever he wants to the car. And after, you know, bad outing at Talladega that was just over before it began, uh, before that, Two tracks that he's flat out said that he just doesn't like, Martinsville and Richmond. I think this is kind of a return to something that he understands his strengths. He believes that he can win. And yeah, I, I think it's picking one of these hundred guys to win this weekend is a safe bet. And I think Larson just represents the safest choice. Nice. So well, I feel good about my pick. So uh, let's go to our contrarian performers. It gets a little more uh, in-depth and questionable when, when we pick our contrarian performers for the weekend. I'll let you go first here, David. Who is your contrarian performer for Kansas? I'm going to incur some risk, and I'm going to pick Daniel Suarez. Ooh. I, I, I feel okay. I don't know that I feel great. Uh, I'll explain why. The reason I'm picking him is because he is the sixth most efficient passer on 550 tracks this season. His car, at least with Jose Blasco Figueroa acting as a fill-in crew chief, ranks better in speed on this track type than the likes of Tyler Reddick's car, Matt DiBenedetto, Ricky Stenhouse, Ryan Newman, and even Christopher Bell, among wow. others. And I think those are some, maybe some contrarian contenders right there. But Suarez over the last four Kansas races turned in the best single restart from the seventh place position and the 13th place position, both non-preferred groove spots that tells me he has a knack for navigating some of this madness that we're going to see on Sunday. And the thing that I don't know that I feel great about the pit crew ranks 28th in the series, uh, in four tire median box time this season. And again, I, I can't, I mean, I can't say this enough. The margins for error at Kansas are big and bad pit stops fit within those margins. So th- so that's the iffy part. But everything else, I like what's going on, and I'm kind of curious to see what matters more. All right, good stuff. Uh, RCR affiliate up there with uh, Trackhouse Racing. Uh, so I'm picking an RCR car, David. I had a little trouble with this one because I-, I just couldn't find anything that really stood out. So I'm, I'm going with Austin Dillon as a contra- my contrarian performer. Um I'm just going with a consistency kind of so of 2021. Look, Homestead, Vegas, Atlanta, Dylan's finished 12th, 12th, and 6th, respectively, on the 550 tracks this year. When you look at uh, kind of on the speed charts, once you get out of the upper tier of, of the really big names, uh, Austin Dillon is right up there in terms of on the speed charts. So 
I wish I had a little more to go with. Again, I just had trouble looking for anything that stood out for one contrarian contender this weekend. So I'm just rolling with consistency. And I think Austin Dillon continues what has been a very good start for him this year, uh, you know, based on his career. Uh, he's having a very good year so far. And I think it continues in Kansas. You're right. And that's a very good year so far. We talked last week that he's ranked 10th in pier. But he's also on the points bubble just because of the unusual number of, of winners to this point. And with the schedule soon tipping towards 750 tracks and road courses specifically, this is a big opportunity for him. He kind of has to have a big day at a 550 track like Kansas uh, just to create a cushion for himself. Uh, not a good road course racer. But this team is good at this track type. I I mean, I don't want to say like it's a must finish top five, top 10 kind of day, but yeah, needs to pad points, both stages and race finish needs to happen for him because um, that bubble is starting to look thin. Again, another new winner in Brad Keselowski. Those, uh, those spots are slowly closing. We will see what you can do. All right. Good episode. Episode 100. Can't say it enough of positive regression. Thank you all for listening so much. Don't forget, we are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Luminary, TuneIn, and YouTube. We're available no matter your device. Our entire back catalog of episodes, yes, 99 of them, they're all available for free at posregpod.com. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or review. This stuff helps in spreading the word. We, of course, noticed, as we always have, it is so appreciated, all the comments over the years and episodes. Thank you so much. If you have any questions, we'd like to hear them. We always love to answer them. Reach out to us on Twitter at POSREGPOD, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. David, you are always working hard. What do you got this week? This week on NBC Sports, I will look into Brad Keselowski's restarting. It is... Very much a strength of his, especially this season. I argue it's kept him in some of uh, these races lately, including last weekend's win in Talladega. And I will also preview the Kansas race uh, for NBC Sports as well. Uh, the only way I know how that article will post on Sunday morning. So check both of those out. All right, good stuff. And keep up with me on all my social channels, mainly on Twitter, I guess. I'll tweet some stuff out at Alan Kavana. But we will debut, I'll have my debut with uh, working with the Speed Sport guys over there with our, our quick hits video that comes out, uh, kind of expanding my, my breadth of racing knowledge and, and just previewing the upcoming weekend of racing across the country, uh, going in straight lines, on motorcycles, even on, yes, some NASCAR. But uh, that'll be a weekly thing, the quick hits series on uh, Speed Sport. So I appreciate you following on there. Also, make sure you watch Fantasy Live over on NASCAR.com because of myself and Amy Long. Try to hit you with some knowledge about who to put in your Fantasy Live lineup. Uh, that's always fun. It gives you a little more incentive while you're watching the race on Sunday. And yeah, just shoot me a follow on all my social media channels. Uh, I would appreciate that. So again, thank you. As always, every episode, David, this has been a pleasure. We are 100 episodes into Positive Regression. Here's to 100 more. I wish I had some sort of Easter egg to deliver right now, but I do not as I'm making this up on the fly. But again, stick around for episode 200, and I promise to have an Easter egg in that episode. So for David Smith, I'm Alan Kavana. Thank you for listening to Positive Regression.
Geico asks, how would you love a chance to save some money on insurance? Of course you would. And when it comes to great rates on insurance, Geico can help. Like with insurance for your car, truck, motorcycle, boat, and RV. Even help with homeowners or renters coverage. Plus, add an easy-to-use mobile app, available 24-hour roadside assistance and more, and Geico is an easy choice. Switch today and see all the ways you could save. It's easy. Simply go to geico.com or contact your local agent today.